Welcome to the 55th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about end-user security practices. So much like the how to have an outage episodes, we're going to do these as a multi-part. Today, we're going to focus on end-user things, things that practically people in offices and workplaces, small businesses, even just users at home can focus if on. If you are a human on the internet, we recommend a set of, good, of best practices for you. Yeah. Please. Um, and a lot of this is going to revolve around kind of internet hygiene, um, passwords and managers and things like that. And if you take anything away from this, take away from this that passwords are bad. Like people in security know that passwords are bad. We all, everybody hates passwords. They're, passwords are the weak spot in our security. And this is despite the fact that, you know, you, people have these onerous password, like, complexity requirements about, you know, have to have 18 characters and five special characters. And, which are proven to make passwords actually more guessable and worse. Yeah. Unfortunately, on the other side of it, passwords, if they're stored incorrectly, they get leaked. Um, there's been a number of fairly public, fairly famous at this point, security breaches of passwords where whole databases from companies have been leaked. One of the early Mark ones... Mark Zuckerberg? Hello? Well, this, I'm thinking about like the Rock U ones where... I think it was, it was several million. It was usernames, passwords, and I think hashes were leaked in clear text. So you could go and just look through the list of what the most popular passwords were. And this became one of the first big seeds for the people doing... Rainbow table stuff, yeah. And saying, hey, we'll just take all the common passwords that people use. And I would love to say that Rocky was the only time this has happened, but it seems to happen every couple of months. There's another one. And this has been going on for a decade or more now. So the attackers have databases of hundreds of millions of user accounts and some smaller number because of password overlap of passwords to try. And they just try those first because they know that people use them. I have random passwords that I used in my early days of interneting um, that were random and I thought fair and they were fairly secure passwords at the time. But at this point I know they're in hacker databases I have seen those passwords be compromised, and it's not a birthday. It's not based on my first name. It was a random password. Yeah, I have a password that I was using in 2002, 2003, and I was, I was young and foolish then. I was in an internet cafe in Moscow, and I logged into a public computer to a, one of the services that I was using. And then 10 years later... How could this go wrong, Brendan? And I, I'd use that password a lot in those days because I, I didn't have good hygiene then. And 10 years later, on one of the lists, that password shows up with my name and my user ID. And it's like, damn, they really do have everything at this point. Like five That's years ago. That's a good story. Yeah, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, but it's, it's appropriate. And if you look through those databases, you'll find me. And you'll find one of the passwords that I was using way back when. Um, but like five years ago, in 2012, there was a researcher who set, set up a cluster of 25 like gaming video cards, because they're really good at doing parallel math operations. And he was able to run through every possible eight-character and shorter password combination for the protocol that Microsoft uses for Active Directory in less than six hours. So basically anything eight characters or shorter for Active Directory in that time was exposed. It was just, it's it's open and done. So... Yeah, passwords are bad, and we, we, we kind of hate them. But that said, 
we still have to use passwords. There's there's no there's no getting around the fact that you need a password. Our security system is still based around passwords. So this is how you make strong ones and make unique ones. Brendan? So my advice has been for many years to my friends and family and coworkers is to find a password manager. Find a good one. Um, ideally, you can go to the people at work and say, hey, what do you recommend for a password manager? Because they're going to have up-to-date recommendations. But even if you're just going to use like the built-in one in... Like Apple has one that's unified between iOS and Safari, or Google has one. These exist. Find a password manager and have that password manager locked with a good, strong password that you memorize. And that's the only one that you memorize. All the rest of them, you let the password manager generate a password and supply it to the website and handle all of that. So if one website gets compromised, it doesn't automatically compromise everything else you do. And you can make 20 character passwords with ampersands and, and any other strange character in them, you don't ever have to see the password. Yeah. And the passwords you're using are really quite secure as far as somebody being able to guess them or brute force them. Yeah. And for the password that you're going to pick to remember, the really important thing, surprisingly, is length. It's not complexity in terms of having like special characters or whatever. Because, again, with the example of the Microsoft Active Directory stuff, all the short passwords have basically been guessed at this point. So you're there. The protection is moving into something longer and make it something that you can remember. There's a really great XKCD number 936 that, that walks through kind of a, a good way to do passwords. And if you Google for XKCD um, password manager, or you actually, the way I, I get to it usually is I type in correct horse battery stapler because those are the four words that he uses in the example, which so you obviously should not use those. But it talks about how entropy works and how pick four common words and a couple of numbers and stick them together and just memorize it. And every six months or so, change it. And now you have better password security than 95% of the people on the internet. We'll stick that in the show notes for sure. Absolutely. That, when it takes a, a graphic comic on the internet to show people how to do a uh, good password security. But yeah, use, use the XKCD password methodology. Use a, uh, password manager. Uh, LastPass is a good one. Pay for it. It's 12 bucks a month. You get it on your phone. It's worth it. Uh, LastPass has had some, uh, security issues in the past, uh, none of which have revealed user data. Because they can't actually decrypt your user data. Um, but they have handled those very transparently. And frankly, they're going to be a, a target for, for being hacked. Good security firms like that are going to be. Um, but the fact that they've been very open and very forthright with what actually happened, what the hackers were able to achieve versus not achieve, is something that you want to look for and you can you actually trust that company or not? Bitwarden is another one of my favorites. Um, again, pay for it. Um, I think Bitwarden makes some uh, choices that favor security over usability, while LastPass usually favors usability. Um, but there's definitely some features to weigh in between them. They're a pile more... Um, find one, pay for it. Usually they're about... 12 or $15 a year. Um, 
you get the app on your phone as well, it's really worth it. My mother and most of my my extended family have moved over to using a one password. It has a nice UI. It integrates well into things. They do a lot of their security practices very well. Um, I personally never have liked the UI for LastPass, but I use LastPass. It's it's very effective. I just the the interface has never been what I go for. Anyway, so now that you have a password manager. Use your password manager and set the passwords on all of your email accounts to long random strings managed by your password manager. After you've changed that password to a secure password, make sure you enable multi-factor authentication on your email account. I want to really stress the importance of your email account. Your email account is this old and busted you know, thing that we have based on 1960s technology that everyone hates nowadays. I mean, wouldn't you much rather use Facebook Messenger? But every bank, Facebook, investment firm, any online account that has information about you that has an account will let you reset your password by sending an email link to your email. So if your email gets compromised, you probably already have some of those password reset things in your email, folks that compromise your email know where your accounts are, can know to go to Bank of America and click reset my password, get the email, and then instantly they have access to your bank or basically any other account you have. So protecting your email account um, with a strong password and multi-factor authentication is about the most important thing you can do. What is multi-factor authentication? A password is something you know. The multi-factor authentication bit is something you have, which is usually your cell phone. Well, strictly, multi-factor authentication means using more than one of the three factors for identification and authorization. Um, And they commonly are known as something you know, something you have, and something you are. Something you know, like a password or a passphrase a date of birth, a mother's maiden name, that kind of thing. Something you have being a key to your front door or a hardware token or a cell phone or something that you can say this unique device. And then something that you are like a biometric, like if you have a fingerprint scanner or if you have a retina scanner or those kinds of things. I'm always kind of wary about biometrics because you can't change them. If somebody gets a a high quality copy of your fingerprint, now you can't prove who you are with your fingerprint anymore because somebody else has it. And that's, you can't replace that later. Whereas you can get a new cell phone, you can get a new key, you can you can change other things out. So I, I tend to shy away from anybody who talks about... I don't think technology is, is to the level where I trust the biometrics. Yeah. Although the thumbprint on my iPhone is really handy and I do use it. Um, but... One thing to remember is that a court in the U.S. can um, force you to use your thumbprint to unlock your iPhone. They cannot force you to give give away the password. Yeah, the the court rulings are basically your your fingerprint is kind of like a DNA sample. It's kind of like those kinds of things where it's ancillary evidence. And they can compel the production of it, whereas the knowledge that's in your head falls under the Fifth Amendment stuff. Yes, under the Fifth Amendment stuff, where you can't, if you... You cannot be forced to incriminate yourself. 
And if you admit knowledge of a password to a file or whatever it is, well, then now you've incriminated yourself because you've proven that you know it. And so there's a long-standing legal ruling that says you cannot be compelled to produce a password. So, yeah, um, I believe most folks use Gmail, um, and Google will walk you through uh, setting up multi-factor authentication and downloading um, the Google Authenticator app to your cell phone, um, which for most cases is where I would start with using multi-factor authentication for, you know, the, the average person, the average sort of sysadmin is use Google Authenticator or use Authy um, on your cell phone. Anywhere that uh, folks say that Google Authenticator can be used, you can also use Authy. Google Authenticator just happens to seem to have the market share in that in that way. Yeah, they're using both sta- work in both cases. They're using a standard protocol that's relatively easy to implement correctly. And so those are two trusted and well-known sources of implementations of the protocol for it. Okay. There's definitely some differences between an Authy and Google Authenticator. Google Authenticator is technically more secure. Um, Authy actually uses an API to uh, store your encrypted tokens online. So if you lose your phone or upgrade your phone, you can reinstall the Authy app, uh, use your password, and get your tokens back. Where with Google Authenticator, you have to go to each service and get your tokens reset, which is definitely possible, but not quite as easy as as resetting your password. It's also worth noting that the security folks have started to recommend people move away from using SMS as a a two-factor authentication piece, because SMSs are very trivial to intercept and to, to monkey with. So the security community, Google included, is starting to say... Yeah, not so much. We're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to support it. We're going to try to push people off of it. It's it's really easy because everybody, everybody has a cell phone these days, and so it's easy to use SMSs, but they're not a good tool for this anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, if your bank or other wise online account gives you the option of multi-factor authentication and give you the option of Google Authenticator or Authy, use that, or better, use a hardware token don't use the SMS or voice call function. Well, if all you have is SMS, if that's the only option you're given, use it. I'm, I'm not trying to tell people not to use it if that's the only choice they have. There but, are definitely some financial institutions that only offer that. And it's better than only having a password. Because if there's only a password, it's easier to get into your accounts. Um, you just have to crack your password and port your phone number. Yeah. Um, you mentioned hardware tokens a second ago. Hardware tokens are an interesting new piece of kit, and we're not going to get into them too deeply on this episode, probably on the next episode about security, but it's effectively a little computer on a USB drive or a thumbstick that you put into your computer and then, or you wave by the NFC chip on your phone, and it does the challenge response, and so it's doing your two-factor, and it's extraordinarily secure. Um, Google moved over to hardware tokens for all like 90,000 of their employees sometime in the last 18 months. And one of their spokespeople said that since they've rolled out the hardware tokens, they haven't had any employees at all be fished by any external party, which is Successfully. amazing. So if you're given the option of a hardware token by either your work or by your bank or whoever it is, jump on it 
they're they're a far better solution than we've than anything else that you can get at this point. The tokens are usually pretty affordable. You stick it on your key ring, you plug it into your USB port when you sit down on your computer. Yeah, you're no typing those uh, MFA codes from your iPhone into your computer. To give you an idea, the the expensive tokens are like forty dollars. They're, these are not terribly expensive devices. They're designed to be replaceable and disposable. If you if you lose one, you just you mark it as lost and you get another one and you move on. So they're they're great for everything. So moving on from passwords and tokens and two FA, there's other simpler things you can do to also help prevent badness. And one of those things is if you have a work computer. Only do your work on the work computer. Don't do personal there as well, and don't log into work from your personal computer. If there's something, like somebody else in the house has been playing games on your computer or has been doing suspicious things on the internet, there is a non-zero chance that there is somebody watching keystrokes on your personal computer. And if you always have your work computer segmented off and it's always just work, you you lower the risk of somebody getting into your work accounts and then messing with your career and with all kinds of other things. It's, it's just a hygiene thing, but it really helps. I always find that particular advice difficult to follow. Just the way I've, the patterns I've learned to work in over way too many years. Like my habit of wanting to work from a Linux workstation. Oh, I I'm have not, a nice one at my house. I'm not I use saying. It for both. <laughs> I'm not saying only use work supplied computers, but if you if you build a Linux workstation to work from, or you have a machine at home to work from, that machine needs to be dedicated to work, and you know don't do personal browsing on the work computer, and don't log into your work administrative portal from your personal computer unless you re like just. Mm. This to me just it drives me crazy. The the number of systems that somebody's home machine has been compromised by a virus or whatever else, and then it spills over into the work stuff. One of the working at the university several jobs ago, there were people whose home computers were set up to use the VPN and they would they would connect in because the machines were compromised and then so the attackers were actually using the VPN to connect to the campus network because once you're on the VPN, it's assumed that you're safe. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, you're not safe. How VPNs don't work. Next episode. You know, VPNs are, are a whole other topic, which we will, we will definitely get to. Um, but try to keep the system separate. Try not to do work from personal and personal from work because it, it just it keeps things cleaner. Um, also remember that if you have administrative powers to things, if you have access to a billing system or a password reset portal or... Even low-level administrative functionality at work, you are a higher target. You're more valuable to the attackers than anybody else is because they can and you probably should assume the attackers know it. Yeah, and they're going to try to get into your system so they can pivot and go into the next system, or at least to start collecting credentials of people, and then maybe hey, this person gets promoted, and now we have access to more stuff. So, be really careful. Like just. When you're logging into an administrative anything, like anything that's that's more secure than even just, say, email, be aware of where you are, what you're doing. If you're in a coffee shop Wi-Fi kind of situation, oh, 
that just gives me the heebie-jeebies. But that's a third episode. <laughs> so yeah. I had, I have another handful of really simple things that I think put a lot of folks in a good situation for you know casual browsing, casual work um, on the internet. A, you've got your MFA set up on your cell phone. Um, I use an iPhone. Oh, now people know how to hack me. Uh, make sure you enable your PIN or password protection on your iPhone or Android device. Um, if you believe that your phone may be confiscated in the near future, turn it off. Turning it back on will require the PIN or password to be entered and not just the thumbprint or other biometric that your phone may use. I believe that Apple and Google have both added in the most recent releases or in relatively recent releases um, a quick keyboard combination on the phone that will force the the, the pin input rather than using biometrics. Um, and I think both really make it hard to not set up at least a pin to access your phone. But that actually makes those devices relatively secure because they're well encrypted as well. Um. What's next? Um, if you run OS X on your Mac laptop or a Mac workstation, Mac makes it super easy to encrypt your machine. Uh, go to System Preferences, click Syst- uh, Security and Privacy, and click on Fire Vault and encrypt your machine. It's super simple. It doesn't slow down your machine any that I've ever noticed. Um, so the first implementation of File Vault was actually pretty terrible in terms of speed. And a lot of the people who don't want to use it remember the first version. And it was slow, it was CPU intensive, it caused all kinds of I.O. problems. Not that that really matters for the layperson. File Vault 2 is almost entirely transparent. And so turn it on, it'll print out a recovery key. I would make a copy of that key and keep it somewhere physical, like a safe deposit box or something. So you write if, that key down. I keep it in my password manager and my uh, emergency key supply. I don't um, always encrypt my Linux workstations. My excuse to myself is there is it's a whole lot harder to steal my Linux workstation than the laptop I keep on in my backpack that I walk around with that I would sit in a coffee shop and use. Um, rather than the machine I can always lock the house door on. That said, encrypting your local hard drive on your workstations for other machines is also a really easy security win to make sure if your hard drive, if your physical machine gets stolen, hackers can't steal your identity as well. Uh, Along that line, uh, make sure with whatever workstation or laptop you use, that there's a reasonable uh, timeout for the screensaver. So if you walk away from your computer for some odd reason, within 10, 15 minutes, that computer will activate the screensaver and require a password for further access. A better step is to set up a, a hotkey combination for your screen lock and know it. Um, so when you walk away from your computer, you hit the key combination and off you go. Um what is it on the Mac, Brendan? Control, shift, escape? I actually don't use a hotkey. I have a the bottom right-hand corner of my laptop screen is what I use for um, sleep with password lock immediately. So I just throw the mouse into the corner and it, it locks. But even that, I don't do that much. I just close the, the lid of the laptop. 
Yeah, that's super handy. Because within, within about a second and a half of a lid being closed, everything is locked up tight. And then if somebody else opens the lid, it's good. Your encryption password is required. Yeah. So it's it's a really easy thing, and it keeps casual baddies out. And if your laptop is locked and it gets stolen, you go to – if it's a work laptop, you go to work and you say, hey, uh, the laptop was stolen, file vault was turned on. Sorry about losing the laptop, but it's better than losing the data. And they'll provision you a new one, and they're going to be happy that you had the the thing encrypted, and you'll be off to the races. And if it's your personal laptop, what it means is the person who has it can't easily resell it. Essentially, all you can do at that point is reformat and reprovision the laptop. And you could take it to a store and try to sell it as a laptop, but there's really no way to get your data off of the laptop. And if you want to sell a working laptop, that means, yeah, you do have to reinstall it somehow, which means it's even harder to get your personal data off the laptop. But yes, uh, follow those basic instructions. And for casual users, it's super easy for um, junior-level sysadmin folks. Uh, That gets you in a good place for browsing the internet safely and dealing with stuff safely. Um, As you become a more trusted uh, system administrator, DevOps, professional, uh, software engineer. There are definitely some more, ta- more steps you probably want to take, and we'll cover those in future episodes. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 55th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely.